think that La Dachosi is right on. Um, like everything in that document speaks to our kind of existential crisis about climate change and about our um, sense of common humanity and the ethics that go into caring for each other um, and caring for for life on our planet. Like it's all intertwined. You can't separate one from the other. And I think that that is one area that I um, think that what is written in that document is precisely what needs to be talked about and talked about a lot and actually embraced and um, acted upon. Hello, everyone. My name is Tim Cron, and I'm the host of the What's Our Future podcast. I'm a member of the Society of Catholic Scientists, and in this podcast, I interview other Catholic scientists about their research, how that research fits into some of the big questions we face, and as well as church teachings. We explore my guests' Catholicism, their religious journey, and what parts of church teachings they find challenging as a scientist and why. And finally, we discuss the future of their area of research, as well as sort of the future of faith and reason. In today's podcast, we interview Kate Belinsky. Kate is a paleontologist from the uh, Bellarmine University in Louisville. And so we spend time talking about her, her research, paleontology, evolution, creation, and then her faith journey as a scientist, and also some of her perspectives on faith, reason, and uh, gender. This podcast, I believe, is unique, and I hope you value it. Uh, please subscribe to the podcast and let us know how much you like it by giving us a five-star reading. Thank you. So everybody, welcome to the podcast. Today we have Kate Belinsky from Bellarmine University joining us. Kate, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, you know, we were just talking off mic about uh, the Kentucky and Kentucky Derby, but Bellarmine is in Louisville, right? That's right. And you've been there how long? Uh, I just completed my 14th academic year on the faculty. Oh, boy. So, what's the size of the, of the university? Um, so it's around 2,500 undergrads and then another 1,000 graduate students or so. So usually around the, somewhere between 3,000 and 3,500 students. So it's a smaller institution. Um, right. Yeah. So we think of ourselves as like a, a liberal arts institution, but we just went division one with our athletics um, this past year and actually won our conference championship. Uh, but we're not eligible for um, like March Madness. Uh, so we, we won the conference championship for men's basketball. So we're kind of oh. dabbling in the um, on the larger stage now that we're in division one. Now you get to play my alma mater, University of Kentucky, mm -hmm. in basketball. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're getting all these Boy. great exhibition games and just a cool matches, uh, matchups. Yeah. Good for mm -hmm. you. Well, you know, one thing about that, though, is it does get your name out there a lot. For sure, yeah. You know, you know, there are a couple of universities I know of that nobody would even care about if or heard of if they hadn't been in D1 basketball. Mm -hmm. And uh Good, good. So, so your background, right? You, um, you know, as we talked, you kind of moved around a lot, didn't you? Your dad was in the army. That's right. Yeah, my him. my dad was career army. So, um, as a kid, I grew up uh, moving every few years, living on army bases, um, experiencing lots of different parts of the country. Uh, and then after my father retired from the army and went into a career in education, um, I settled in Pennsylvania. 
uh, for high school and then went to Penn State for college. Yeah. Penn State, did, now, did you take in the entire Penn State experience? I know they have a lot. I athletics and a lot of other sure. things and they're kind of in the middle of nowhere right. but, yeah you know, it's, it's a college town and um i definitely took in the college experience like we ha- had season tickets to the football game and, yeah. you know experienced all of that but i was also um very serious with my academics you know i was in the honors program and spent a lot of time studying <laughs> and uh really focusing on on learning and you know did some study abroad yeah. kinds of things and you know e- embracing the college experience yeah, good for you. Now you start off in chemistry, but on a whim, took a geology class, and that was the end of that. Yeah, I guess, huh? yeah. I, I wasn't really connecting that well with chemistry. I knew I wanted to study science, um, like that was sort of where my um, preferences were. But I didn't really know what field of science, and um, tried out chemistry. It just wasn't really that exciting to me. Took a geology course over the summer. And hadn't really thought about it as a career. You know, a lot of people don't really encounter geology in a formal way unless they take a class. And then it just clicked. And it's like, well, this, of course, this is what I should study. And I've always been interested in rocks and minerals as a kid, um, of of course. Uh, I just didn't really think about it as a college degree. Uh, So that's what I pursued. And then a few years into it, discovered paleontology as like a subfield. Um, and then right. went on to graduate school at University of Cincinnati for studying paleontology. You know, just as a quick aside, my I can understand not liking chemistry. My uh, when I walked into my chemistry one hundred and one class, the professor told us that half of us were going to fail a class, and then he started his lecture and was like, "Thanks a lot, appreciate that." Yeah, it doesn't have to be like that, though. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I think sometimes. Um, that that kind of weed out course kind of approach yeah. is not always that helpful for fostering like scientists and no. scientific inquiry. No, no, it doesn't. But um, so, but when you went into paleontology, right? You you sort of specialize in paleoecology and invertebrate paleontology. That's right. So the yeah. the people that introduced me to paleontology when I was at Penn State were both invertebrate paleontologists. So they study creatures that are mostly in, in marine environments that don't have backbones, clams, snails, trilobites, those sorts of things. And um, paleoecology, of course, is looking at like entire ecosystems of these kinds of organisms. So that was what interested me a lot and what also drew me to Cincinnati specifically for my graduate studies. Um, University of Cincinnati is one of the top 10 schools in the country for paleontology programs, uh, largely because of their geography. They're located in this part of the North America that is just packed with fossils. So um, this just geographic location is a natural hotbed for paleontology. And so the University of Cincinnati has always had strength there um, in their geology program. So I started graduate school there. Now, is it from a particular uh, uh, part of the, of the Paleozoic era Mm -hmm. or is it, is which part of that? Can you kind of, I know, I know there's a hierarchy. Yeah. So it's from the Ordovician period, specifically at the end of the Ordovician period, there's, it's called the Cincinnatian. It actually is named for the Cincinnati region. It's that special. Uh, People come from all over the world to study the fossils of the Cincinnati region. Um, And so to put this into context, it's older than the dinosaurs, like 
450 million year old rocks, wow. um, much, much older than the dinosaurs actually. Um, so we're talking about a time when much of North America was covered with a shallow ocean. And it, that included the Cincinnati area, which is why it's so packed with sea creatures. Uh, and it's a, it was something like a subtropical environment, something like the Bahamas you could think about, where it's like shallow water with lots of limestone forming and, and storms coming through like hurricanes churning up the water. And um, that was what Cincinnati was like 450 million years ago. Right. And the continents were not, were still, um, were the continental layout was much different right. back then. Still, so right? what we now call North America, which is um, geologically we call it Laurentia, was south of the equator at that time. Okay. Now, why Cincinnati? Why that area becoming so rich in fossils um, instead of other parts of the country. Mm -hmm. I mean, it really was an accident. I, mean, I don't know about accident, but it was the circumstances of um, geography of where the continents were, what the water depth was like, um, what kinds of sediment was coming into the region, what, um, how much sunlight is penetrating into the water, the kinds of conditions that you think about from modern environments, we can think about how that applies to the past and reconstruct what that was like. And so all of those kinds of qualities were there, which was perfect for supporting high amounts of diversity in a marine ecosystem. And so that area of Cincinnati was just right for it. And it also preserved really well. Um, lots and lots of carbonate rock forming and preserving, and it hasn't eroded away. It's still there. Um, so we can go and study it, and it's exposed very, very well through the region. So it's easy to study. And with paleoecology, you you have to bring in things like biology, geology, other science areas. Does the in order to study the environment within which these invertebrates uh, created, flourished, evolved, is it easier there in the Cincinnati area to study the the ecology of of that that particular uh, time and place? Yeah. To some extent, uh, yes, but there are tech different techniques that we use for studying paleoecology. So in the Cincinnati area, there are, there's just a lot of top topography through the region where there's big right. stacks of rock layers. And so you can go out and measure the rock layers and correlate them from outcrop to outcrop. You can sample them and bring them back to the lab and actually count up all the different types of fossils that are on the rock and, and develop data sets to work with. And so when you're an invertebrate paleontologist, you're working with lots and lots of specimens typically because you have lots of clams and lots of snails that are preserved and you can count them and use them like data points for understanding right. the past. And that's what modern day ecologists do too. They might go out, let's say, if they're studying insects and, and um you know, count up the number of insects that are in a certain part of a forest and try to understand the ecology of that community too. So we do that similar kinds of work with similar techniques, but just using fossils. So it is in, in a sense easier in Cincinnati just because of how abundant the rock is and how many different places you can go to study it. But there are other places around the world that have really interesting outcrops to study. So here in Louisville, to give you an example, we have a Devonian age fossil bed called the Falls of the Ohio. And it's quite literally in the Ohio River. When the Ohio River lowers down, it exposes this ancient seafloor 
that you can go out and study, but it's like one continuous layer. And so when I go out to work with the Falls of the Ohio, I can quite literally lay down measuring tape and then study fossils along transects, kind of like what people would do with modern day coral reefs. If they were going to scuba dive and study the coral of, right. of today, it's just I'm using um, a one continuous fossil layer. So that's another technique. And so it's um, another really special place to study fossils, but these fossils are a bit younger um, than what you see in Cincinnati. So given our, our focus today on climate, what, what is it about the climate or ecology back then? Uh, what are a couple, three things that kind of stand out? Yeah. So when we're thinking about like ancient time, one of, uh, there's a few things that are really important when we think about understanding ancient eco ecosystems. Um, of course, plate tectonics, where are the continents? Um, and uh, also our ancient um, atmosphere. So how, how much greenhouse gas was in the atmosphere at that time? How much warmer or cooler was it than today? Um, there, it's, there's lots of different variables that um, have changed over geologic time. How much of that carbon in the atmosphere has been sequestered into, say, limestone rock um, or into the fossil fuels that we use today that used to be in the atmosphere and then were, were pulled in by plants and algae and buried? Uh, so that's one really big difference is just our ancient climate and the ancient ecosystems and what they were doing as they were cycling carbon and then what we have today is really different. Now we're unearthing all of that ancient carbon or a lot of that ancient carbon, I should say, and releasing it back into the atmosphere, but just on very fast time scales compared to the hundreds of millions of years that it was being sequestered in the Paleozoic, for instance. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I think I, you know, in my trying to understand today's issues and climates, I always go back and see what happened you know, in, in previous millennia and, and farther back in, in understanding, you know, the, the Earth's atmosphere has evolved a lot. Everything here has evolved a lot, the climate and all. But one of the things that I always kept uh, kind of, I guess, tripping over is that point that, you know, we, we humans have, have impacted our climate and environment on a far rapid, more, more rapid time scale than anything else um, in past history. At least that's my sense. And in trying to understand the relevance of high carbon dioxide periods in the past and so on, uh, I've always had trouble trying to compare the two today and back then, the various high carbon dioxide uh, atmospheres for that very reason. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know about you, I, I, but that's the one thing, that the time scale thing just makes it really difficult mm -hmm. to try to understand previous episodes. Yeah, there's a lot to untangle there. And there are, there are um, processes that happen on much longer timescales than humans normally think about. You know, the, the effect of the erosion of rocks, for instance, um, and the sequestering of carbon over incredibly long time periods. That's something that's such a slow process that... Yeah. We don't really think about it in terms of our human timescales. Um, you know, there have been ages of um, glaciation in the past and then warm periods and extinctions associated with both. 
And um, these are natural parts of our Earth system uh, that have changed over, over time. Some of those processes are still at work today, but get swamped out by, um, you know, the human effects and so forth. So let me ask you this. One thing I noticed about scientists in my career is that we sometimes get interested in other stuff. You know, sometimes we get interested in a shiny new object like cold fusion that it doesn't pan out mm -hmm. and we waste, you know, six weeks of our life worrying about it kind of thing. Um, but we do almost thematically, we have kind of stuff we're interested in that, you know, it evolves with time and what a scientist works on, you know, coming out of their PhD, um, could evolve into something pretty different. Has, has this happened to you? Uh, yes, for sure. Uh, so, you know, coming out of graduate school, um, you know, I earned my doctorate and got my first faculty position, which is at Bellarmine where I am today. Uh, I was really thought of myself as an invertebrate paleoecologist. That was what I was going to do. All of my research was going to focus on that. And it still does. I still do research in that area. Um, but I became interested in a, f a few other things. Um, one was faith in science. Um, and it, it was something that I encountered early in my time at Bellarmine and then kind of stepped away from for a little bit and I'm coming back around to it. Um, and my interest in that area stemmed from, A, being a person of faith myself and a scientist. So I occupy that, that space that not a lot of people occupy, but I do. Um, yeah. And I feel comfortable with that. Um, B, I'm at a Catholic institution, so I have the ability to kind of operate in that space as a Catholic scientist and kind of um, lean into it. And then um, I, in my time in graduate school, was in Cincinnati when the Creation Museum opened up in northern Kentucky. Uh, and so I was very aware of some of the cultural forces that were at work with um this perception that faith and science were incompatible, but that doesn't jive with what Catholic teaching is that faith and science are compatible. And so I became very uh, aware and attuned to this and kind of bothered by what was happening in our broader culture about the way that faith and science were perceived. And so I started to explore that with my teaching once I got to Bellarmine and um, that kind of fostered more of an interest there. Now, Thinking back to your students when you started to do that, did they have any cognitive bias, preconceived notion uh, between evolution, creationism? Um, and then also, how, how many of them thought that the Catholic Church believed in creationism? Because I run into that one all the time. But. Yeah. So um, at Bellarmine, not every, every student is Catholic, but a lot of them are. Uh, but but just to say that I have students from all different kinds of religious uh, backgrounds um, and also a-religious students in my classes. So there's lots of different perspectives that come into the classroom. Um, but I would say that there's just general confusion. Um, I don't have, you know, specific numbers of like what percentage of my students think this or that, although it would be really interesting to, to survey them on that yeah. at some point. Um, but I would say just general confusion, just not knowing for sure what the church teaches or what different religious traditions have to say about um, different scientific topics. It could be evolution and creationism. It could be some other kinds of topics um, like climate change or, or other things that are kind of perceived as controversial in our society. They're just, um, I think, 
some automatically think that there's some incompatibility there. And then within Catholic circles in particular, um, I've had Catholic students say to me, I thought that because I was Catholic, I wasn't supposed to believe in evolution. Um, you know, yeah, and yeah. they have to kind of set the record straight and, and say, well, no, you know, the Catholic Church teaches this, but I understand why you would be have some of those ideas because our our society has kind of misconstrued where faith and science interact and um, kind of painted them as complete diametrically opposed as if they can't be um, yeah. talked about at the same time. So yeah, there, there's just so much confusion. Yeah. I, I, I run into the same thing when I talk with people who have just, have already of the opinion that, well, a Catholic, you, you, you know, how can you be a scientist and still be Catholic? I don't get that. You know, I get those questions a lot. Though I will tell you, the the focus on creationism seems to have died down quite a bit. People don't, I guess it's more they're, they're not really thinking about it. It's not in the news a lot. Yeah, I think there's bigger fish to fry in some respects, right? Um, there's it's, a lot yeah. going on in our world today that where it seems like the the debate, if you want to call it that, between evolution and creationism is seems almost quaint in the face of all the other things that are going on. But, you right. know, from my perspective, though, I do care, I still care a lot about it because it represents something about um, mis miscommunication, misinformation, um, this kind of anti-intellectual, anti-science rhetoric that's out there that I really um, find problematic. You know, we want to try to educate future generations with good scientific practices and scientific knowledge, whether or not they become right. scientists. And so it really bothers me when there's information out there that's not accurate. Yeah, that's, uh, I, I, you know, with COVID, one of my biggest problems was getting authentic, truthful data from which to understand and evaluate, you know, what I was being told. And, you know, at one point, there were, there was, you know, a emphasis on this one computer model. And when I looked at it in detail into the published paper, the thing must have had dozens and dozens and dozens of free parameters you could set. I mean, I, you know, I could, I could predict anything you wanted by setting all those free parameters. And, and yeah, it's, it's, the, it's a, the authoritative and sort of truthful information, right, that we continually run run into problems with. And I think that's one of the roles of a Catholic scientist is in the conversation around faith and science is to make sure that we're consistently proclaiming a, 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 a strong uh, relationship between faith and science. I've been, I've been reading, or I've been, I shouldn't say I've been reading a book. I've been trying to read a book by Michael Hanby on No God, No Science. And it's like every sentence, he's a, he's a philosopher and very smart guy. He's at the John Paul Institute in, at Catholic University of America. And chapter one is, you know, like every sentence, I have to stop and think about it and, and write something down. You know, like, you know, like a lot of philosophers, he, he starts off every sentence with a very long prepositional phrase. You know, he writes in the passive tense, drives me nuts. It makes it that much more difficult to figure out. And we maybe talk about it a little bit later, but um, his, you know, he talks about faith and science and theology, or rather metaphysics, theology. It's it's a very, it's a 
I think it's a great way to think about it if I can decipher what he's saying and try to internalize it. But it's been one of the most difficult books for me to read on the topic and and understand it. But now, so you made this sort of pivot to faith, science, evolution. Did did you kind of leave your your paleontology or paleoecology behind or did that kind of morph into something different? No, I, I do I pursued both of those trajectories at the same time. Um like sometimes one becomes more takes up more time than the other. Um so, you know, when I'm doing my paleoecology work, it usually requires um, some significant amount of field work uh, so that I need certain amounts of time and effort devoted to that. So um, when I went on sabbatical in, I think it was the fall of 2017, and so I spent that semester in the field with students um, doing uh, data collection over at the Falls of the Ohio on a paleoecology project, for instance. And so, you know, it's doing a lot of intensive field work. It takes a lot of time collecting that information and then working with it for um, some time thereafter. And then my faith and science uh, work is partially explored through teaching. And then more recently, I've been interested in um, pursuing some projects related to training teachers, working with teachers in the Catholic schools in the area to um, give them some more um, perspective and guidance around the topic of faith and science. So some of my work on with faith and science is more applied uh, of, of doing things to help foster understanding between faith and science. I also gave a, a lecture following our um, gold mass celebrating Catholic scientists here in the archdiocese um, back in November, I gave like the keynote address after that about the topic of faith and science. So it's like outreach and kind of um, educational outreach work with teachers that is characterizes more of my faith and science work, at least at this point. Okay. Did that lead to, I mean, your paleoecology work, did that lead to anything that you're interested in with regard to the current discussions on climate change? Because um, I could see a kind of a, given that was you're doing, you could easily, it's sort of an obvious question. Yeah, that's a really good, good question. So I guess I need to give you a little more context for that. So my um, department here at Bellarmine is the Department of Environmental Studies. So we train students to become environmental professionals. And the kinds of courses I offer in, in support of that our introductory geology courses, um, environmental geology, and then paleontology as well, um, studying you know the natural world, ancient ecosystems, ancient climates. So there's a, a connection there. Also, just fundamental scientific um, explorations, like setting hypotheses, collecting data, like those sorts of things. And so you know, I come at the topic of climate change from understanding deep time. Um, but I also teach about modern day climate change in my courses and have a, a, a good understanding of the different parts of the climate system and how they operate. Um, I, I'm not a climate scientist, uh, but I am, I would say, proficient in understanding the, cl the climate system. And so my interest in like modern day climate change topics is professional because I teach these uh, future environmental professionals and they need to know about that. 
and also personal because I really care about it. Um, I think it's important to understand what's happening with our global climate and um, communicate effectively about that as a scientist. Like I have a role to play in that. And also just ethically to do um, whenever I can what is right to support um, more sustainable choices. Okay. So I will probably come back to this later on our, um, when we I'm kind of going through again the, your science background, then we'll get into the theology and then we'll bring it together. Sort of my, my usual approach here with people. So then, you know, one thing I always like to cover is, is, you know, how does your work fit into some, you know, major question like creation of life, creation universe, things like that. So there's obviously, this was an easy one, right? <laughs> is, um, you know, the, how, you know, we, not so much creation of life, because I know that's still a way open topic, but it's more the, the evolution piece and the fact that, you know, evolution is a, is a accepted theory. And, and, but that doesn't mean that there aren't uh, antagonists to it who around young earth creationism, old earth creationism. And, you know, I, I have to believe that the, the theory of evolution has gotten stronger with time, has gotten more substantive with time. But I know there's still things like intelligent design that is still a popular topic out there, though it's not, it's not the intelligent design of uh, 10, 15, 20 years ago. It's, it's evolved. But, you know, I have to believe that, you know, we believe in theistic evolution, which accepts the theory of evolution and creation, you know, the Big Bang and all. Is it, how does the, you know, the recent advances, the stuff that you're doing and others doing, how does that help to make, make the theory of evolution more, more authoritative, sure. more uh, clear and help to, help to assuage people that, you know what, this is what really happened. Mm -hmm. And these other, these other theories as they come along, um, simply don't reflect the truth. Right. Well, I mean, with any kind of scientific concept, hypothesis, theory, we're talking about gathering evidence, right? Gathering information that um, either supports or refutes something. And for theory of evolution, there's different lines of evidence, right? There's, there's genetic evidence. Um, there's the fossil record. There's studying, you know, modern uh, biological systems. All of these things that kind of work together to support the entire body of knowledge about evolution. So as far as like the work that a paleontologist like myself would be doing, we're, we're studying parts of the geologic record, ancient ecosystems, and trying to reconstruct what happened in the past in a kind of like a, like a very, very large global timeline of what happened on the earth over these hundreds of millions and really billions of years of time. And so anything that a paleontologist can contribute to what we know about the ancient earth kind of paints a, a richer picture of what's happened throughout all of the history of our planet. Um, and that includes uh, understanding the actual evolution of life through time. Um, and then you, you add in our knowledge about genetics um, and you can see that there, there's compatibility there, that the things that we can see with genetics match up what we see in the fossil record and what evolved when and 
from what uh, we can see those relationships borne out with genetics, which is really exciting that there is like this yeah, internal yeah. Um, like cohesiveness between these different fields. And this it's all kind of building out this full picture of our biological system. Yeah, I've been I've been reading up on the on the genetic part of evolution. Um, it just seems to me uh, sort of the source of my question was, you know, as you bring in something completely different, it tends to reinforce and, and, and support what's already been found, but also add to it. Um, and, and that's why I, I, I'm hoping that some of these other ideas have, are, are becoming less relevant, uh, less important to the uh, populace and, and also in schools, right? It becomes more and di more difficult to, um, to teach evolution, to teach alternatives to evolution yeah. without running into these significant roadblocks. It just depends though. Like the, there are really strong cultural forces at work here that sure. are also promoting um, anti-science rhetoric or even like conspiracy theory type approaches to the world. And that's woven into some of these other ideas ideas um that aren't yeah. supported by scientific evidence i mean that's the dividing line like is it supported by science um right. or is it some something that is more of like a worldview um that actively rejects science like that's where we draw the line like you know you can believe in young earth creationism if you want but if you do you have to be a willing willingly reject what science says about right, the world right. and the observations that we have and the experiments that we have run and just say, well, I don't believe in any of that. And then there's just like cognitive dissonance there that I don't really understand how, uh, how someone might be able to like think that way. Um, like, but that's kind of where we are. <laughs> and uh, I, um, in my younger days when I was much less circumspect, about talking with people, I had a conversation with a, a young Earth creationist, and I, and he he said something. I said, "Listen, pal, if you don't believe in evolution, you can't believe in God. You, you, you can't do one or the other. You know, evolution comes with God. Right? You don't believe in evolution, you don't believe in God." And kind of set him off, right, uh, a little bit. But I still thematically still believe that that you know ev you know evolution as a theory is is very compelling. Right? It's not a law, right? But it's a theory. It's very compelling. And when you start to go down this path of rejecting science, that's clearly um, in place. There's implications to that, right? I mean, it's one thing about questioning our whole approach to COVID and, and the science behind it, because that's still a, a work in progress in terms of understanding exactly what happened and so on. And but with with evolution, right? It's just so the, the body of knowledge. But I still acknowledge it's still a theory, right? Just like general relativity is still a theory yeah, of gravity. I mean, even though it's ex extremely accurate. Yeah, I mean, a theory is an overarching ex scientific explanation that's supported by lots of evidence. I mean, that's how we see it. So I, I wouldn't really think it's even uh, something that I would ever expect to become a law. It's not as like black and white as yeah. something like that, but it is an overarching explanation that we have this huge body of evidence. And we might have new evidence that comes to light that makes us think 
a little bit differently about certain parts of the process of evolution or certain components, like especially uh, questions around the the origin of life, which is sort of a separate topic, but ties into the idea of evolution. Like there's more to understand about that, certainly, about the very early um, evidence of life on our planet. But yeah, I, th- I think that the the body of evidence is so vast and strong and internally yeah. um, cohesive that it is very uh, clear that this is how life has unfolded on our planet. Yeah, yeah, and it's it has a beauty and complexity to it that is just difficult to describe at times. Yeah, it's I mean it's awe inspiring, really. Yeah, it really is. So let me pivot now to. Um, your faith. We've talked a lot about reason. Try to pivot to faith now. So, you are a um, cradle Catholic, or someone said to me recently. Actually, I was a Catholic when I was conceived. <laughs> so, <laughs> as you grew up, you know, as teenagers, of course, we always think we know everything. But did you ever have any difficulties with your with your faith formation, or as your journey as a Catholic and then as a Catholic scientist? I know I've had lots of ups and downs, but I'm curious to to see what you experienced. Right. Well, um, I think the the time that I did the most kind of exploring of my faith was in college. I mean, that's I think that's something that's kind of um, typical. I started out in um, college as being a part of like the campus youth group and a cantor in the choir and all that kind of stuff, um, and then I I was just kind of waking up to lots of different things, like exploring the world and um, seeing things in in a new way, just, you know, as an adult in college, and took some religious studies courses, some courses uh, focusing on Buddhism specifically that I just thought was was really interesting. Like, I didn't know anything about it. I wanted to know more about how different cultures view the divine and what kinds of wisdom is out there from different kinds of um, traditions and just started to question and explore and even explore other denominations of Christianity to see, you know, what, how did they worship? What did they do? Um, Ultimately I found Catholicism is still my home, my spiritual home. This is where I I practice my faith. Um, And, uh, but I, I feel um, richer for the experience of having gone through like, questioning and this you know there's still questioning that happens of course even now that will be always a constant in my life um i think if if you're not questioning aspects of your faith it's like time to um i don't know wake up (laughs) but uh i i really enjoy experiencing other cultures traveling um going to other houses of worship and just seeing what else is out there. I don't feel threatened by that. I think it's actually a way to like enrich the human experience, understanding God. And, um, I I really value that. So that's something that I think I took from, from college. Um, you know, there, there are things that I struggle with, um, with Catholicism and like broader cultural issues, um, that can be really, really challenging, um, right. you know, especially issues around like, uh, gender and sexuality and just how to, how to reconcile that. Um, uh, that is something that I think is, is just generally challenging for humans right now. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, the more we, um, the more we've, you know, you, you discover, the more find out about the human body or the human mind, 
you know, the more challenging it's going to become for Catholicism to, you know, internalize that yep. and to, uh, and, and I, I think it's a, and I think it's a role for Catholic scientists to play. And, and I think a more overt way, I, you know, one of the concerns I've had about when, when something like when some, something, some science comes along, like for example, we'll talk a little later about gender studies, but you, you need the science and the theology background to, to, I think, understand it and understand how it fits into our beliefs and our catechisms and our doctrines and dogmas. I've always been uncomfortable with these sort of science questions being solely handled in the church by theologians. Um, and I don't know to what extent that happens. I know I was very, when I was at Arizona in grad school, I knew the the priests at the Vatican Observatory there. And, and in, in that one area, it seemed they had a lot of input into any church doctrine or dogma that was related in some shape, fashion to science, right? They were the, but um, some of these newer ones, you'd like to think there's Catholic scientists that could step up and, and assist theologians in, in extending and understanding and evolving our, our beliefs and our doctrines in such a way that remains consistent with our, our, our um, magisterium, but, but just being able to um, enhance it. Uh, so I, I don't know how much to an extent that that's a, a problem, but I would think that as Catholic scientists, you know, how much are we, how much are we engaged in the process? Is it always the same two or three people that, yeah. that are engaged? Yeah, I, I I don't know the answers to to that. I don't right. really know the extent to which scientists are involved in any of the those kinds of decisions in the church. Um, I do wonder if it's the same people putting input in. I also think bioethicists are, are very important with some of these questions. Oh, yeah. And you know, I don't know how many um, professional bioethicists that are Catholic are involved in any of this kind of work, but I think that that's so critical. Yeah, I know the one area it was it was almost cringeworthy to me is you know AI artificial intelligence is sort of one of my swim lanes, and there was some work or conference done on AI a while back at the Vatican, and um, I just kind of wanted to shake my head. Um, it was, um, it, it was a little, too, it wasn't, um, I don't know who they were depending on for this sort of input, but it, uh, I, I, I found it, uh, disconcerting to say the least, but you know, maybe that was just one thing, but with it, right. I talked with um, bioethics, you know, with Kara Westmark on a previous podcast. Uh, clearly that's, you know, I, you're hoping that there is there are Catholic scientists who have stepped up to contribute in a strong way, at least within the church, but potentially in forms outside of the church. So kind of along those lines, right, you, you, in terms of church Catholic doctrine and in your science background, is there anything about the church itself? I mean, we talked about bioethics, but other doctrines, and, and I know that the, the, there's a papical encyclical on this, but are there, are there, doctrine or uh, within the church that you think are kind of either ripe for addressing in terms of your uh, area of study or in science in general? You know, I know that you, 
you gave, I read a number of your, your talks about faith and science, um, faith and reason, and your, um, you know, kind of how you're questioning the world, your relationship to your faith, and kind of ultimate reality. Um, are there specific areas that you focus in on with regard to Catholic doctrine? I think one that I can really champion, I, I guess, is uh, Laudato Si, as far as like contemporary issues and where I c connect to it. Like, I think that Laudato Si is right on. Um, like, everything in that document speaks to our kind of existential crisis about climate change and about our um, sense of common humanity and the ethics that go into caring for each other um, and caring for for life on our planet, like it's all intertwined. You can't separate one from the other. And I think that that is one area that I um, think that what is written in that document is precisely what needs to be talked about and talked right. about a lot and actually embraced and um, acted upon. Uh, like I think that there's a lot of potential growth and very fast growth that we can do in this area. Like think about all of the different parishes across the world and all of the different buildings that are on those parishes and all of the land that's, that's owned by these dioceses and what could be done if we collectively are thinking about our energy consumption, like conservation of energy or planting trees on our grounds. Like there's, there's so much that can be done on a global scale if we mobilize. Um, and th that's powerful. Uh, but I don't yeah. hear a lot of that kind of talk yet. Um, like the, the groundwork is kind of laid because Laudato Si is out there and people are talking about it and writing about it and so forth. And there's like drips and drabs of activity, but there could be so much more done and it would be very powerful. Uh, do you, you um, talk at all publicly about, about this? Some. Um, I've done talks about climate change, like the science of climate change for various groups. Um, so for instance, I'm on the board of a nonprofit here in town called Kentucky Interfaith Power and Light. It's a state um, chapter of a national organization called in, um, Interfaith Power and Light. And it's an organization that uh, works to mobilize a religious response to climate change. Um, and so it's, interf it's an interfaith organization working with all different kinds of groups. But one of the roles that I play in that organization is being able to go out and do public speaking because I have um, the scientific knowledge and background and I also am comfortable in like religious spaces to do that right. kind of work. Um, so I do speak about that. Uh, for Laudato Si specifically, it would be if I was in a Catholic space that I would talk about that. But yeah, I have um, from time to time it comes up. So I, you know, I've read it several times, and um, it's it's a powerful encyclical. And you know, I identified mostly with the the um, technocratic par paradigm where you talk about you know reducing the human body to an instrument, and you know considering it to be something we can take apart and put back together but also just the overall use of technology to, you know, degrade the human spirit and um, create things that are, you know, in contradiction to, to our teachings and, and, and how we are supposed to engage with our, in our culture. On the flip side, 
technology can be good, right? Um, I don't think word on fire could exist without technology. Um, and I think they've showed a great way forward in using it. But the, the one, the one in my discussions with people about this, right, and how to uh, steward our, our planet better, the, the one thing I've always, to me, was fairly obvious, at least, is, you know, there's never solutions. There's only trade-offs. In other words, we can't come up with a solution to reducing carbon dioxide in our atmosphere without there being other positive and negative trade-offs. And when I've talked with people about these solutions, you know, about how to, how to uh, transition to renewable energies, great, fine, I'm with you. But, you know, it's not a solution. You're just trading off one set of issues and problems for another, right? So with, uh, you know, the world consumes over 100 million barrels of oil a day. You know, there's probably 150 different kinds of oil used to produce over 6,000 products, you know, from gasoline, plastic, you know, bedlin and so on. And when, I th but I think people conflate oil down to one kind of oil that's used for everything, including gasoline. So in trying to get to that, that discussion about so what when you talk about renewable energy how do you you know what is it exactly you're talking about replacing this particular kind of oil or with electric vehicles so you want to reduce the amount of oil we pump that produces a specific distillate all gasoline and diesel fuel but all and then transition to electric vehicles well, well the problem with that is you know, the supply chain for the batteries of electric vehicles um, for a long time was sketchy, and it's still kind of sketchy still. Um, and it involves slave labor, it involves child labor, it involves, you know, lithium mines, which are open pit mines. That um, and, and, and I wouldn't consider that to be stewarding the planet by moving to electric vehicles, um, especially with the significantly enhanced mining that has to occur for, for uh, electric vehicles. So uh, this is where my struggle comes in. I don't know if you have any thoughts or comments. Sure. Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but, and, and, but this is just how I think, right? Mm -hmm. I think about, yeah, great, electric vehicles. But then I look at the trade-offs and I don't see where it's acceptable for us to, at least right now, where it's acceptable for us to move and, and, and build out a new technology, um, which has all these downsides mm -hmm. to it. So. Right. Well, I, I think, you know, we're clearly in a time of like technological, um, I don't know, like a, like a evolutionary breakthrough, right? Like there's all kinds of new technology that's out there and it, none of it is like a magic bullet, right? Each one of right. them has their downsides. And, you know, there's other kind of technology I'm really curious about, like hydrogen fuel cells, for instance, like the hydrogen vehicles, you know, they're really expensive and we don't have the infrastructure for that. But there could be some some real potential right. there. Uh, but, you know, what when we're comparing, let's say, electric vehicles to the internal combustion vehicles, um, both are requiring components that require mining. You know, some of it is more toxic or rare earth kinds of mining. Right. Um, but both of those kinds of vehicles require um, like computer chips and systems in, in modern day vehicles anyway. You know, I, 
to get to like the broader question about fossil fuels, because this is a wide ranging kind of conversation. Um, I don't see, even if we were to like say switch away from um, vehicles that run on fossil fuels, you're right. Like there's a bazillion products out there that require fossil fuels to make. And so we'd have to completely revolutionize the way that we manufacture so many different things to transition away from petroleum, like all the plastics Lots of pharmaceuticals, fertilizer for agriculture. I mean, that is a huge one. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Um, So, you know, there's there are big, big questions out there about how we transition away from fossil fuels um, that go beyond just vehicles. Um, We also think about heating and cooling buildings and all of that kind of stuff. We but but we have to start somewhere, right? Um, So you know. If we're thinking about, let's say, the electrical grid, um, that's one place to start. Thinking about a smart grid where we can make use of the electricity that is generated in the most efficient ways possible to be able to transmit energy across state lines between different kinds of um, like power systems um, to make use of uh, the greenest forms of energy that we can and maximize that. Things like hydro, geothermal energy, which, um, you know, some of these we've kind of uh, just scratched the surface on. Some of them are really expensive. Some of them are more cost competitive, but you know there are ways to start to make progress in that area. We haven't, we haven't maximized what's possible there yet. We still yeah. have to solve the storage issue um, because if we're yeah. talking about solar, well, that's only going to be useful part, parts of the day. So there's the storage issue. Um, where batteries are not really, it's the same thing as what you're talking about with the cars. It's the, the batteries require a lot of c- chemicals and mined materials that have their own sets of problems. But there's other kinds of storage possibilities out there. I'm really curious about hydrogen um, because when you have excess renewable energy at certain times of the day, you can do electrolysis to water, manufacture hydrogen, store it, and then use it when um, you need to have energy during like lulls in solar energy, for instance. But it's expensive. It's not cost competitive. Um, and that's part of the, the drawback. So I don't know that's that's kind of where I'm thinking, um, where my thinking is. But that's just right. like the electrical grid part of it. And it's not so much the transport. Um, that's a whole different set of circumstances. You know, we haven't solved air travel. No. We're not anywhere close to solving air travel. <laughs> um, so I don't know. I think about this stuff a lot. I'm very interested in the topic. It's not my area of expertise, no. but, you know, if we're going to solve all the world's problems on this podcast, <laughs> we have to kind of figure. Th- well, that was my intent. Yeah. I was hoping you'd be able to come to, Let's the, do it. to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Let me pivot to a, another dimension on this is that, and, and this too, I, I don't, I don't remember being addressed well in Laudato C, but when, when, or even in a lot of our, a lot of stuff I've read from the church, you know, in the past hundred years, we in the West have benefited greatly from these technologies, including oil and uh, fossil fuels and so on. And as you have uh, countries and populations that are now starting to benefit from these same things, Suddenly we're telling them, well, wait a minute, you know, we've already screwed the planet up to the extent that we, we have to stop doing this. So therefore you can't have that benefit. 
I find it really difficult to, I won't say keep a straight face, but, you know, how do, you know, we benefited clearly from fossil fuels and other things that are now, um, you know, considered, you know, that we need that the stewardship of our planet really um, asks us strongly, you know, how do we deal with the fossil fuels and renewables? But how can we say to other populations and fellow Catholics, well, you, you can't have the benefits we have because of how badly we screwed it up. And I, 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 I don't think I can say that. So it's also not just incumbent on me to be able to say, you know what, we screwed it up, right? I have to admit it. But what do we offer in place that these populations can um, flourish to the same extent we have in the West. Yeah, I mean, part of the answer here is if we look to like the Paris Climate Accords and some of these other inter international agreements to approach the problem of climate change, it, they, they there's an acknowledgement there that the the more economically developed countries are the ones that are having an outsized influence on the on the climate problem and it's the less developed companies that are actually bearing the brunt of a lot of the consequences of it too so it's not just even that they don't have access to this technologies and we're asking them not to use those technologies but they're also experiencing like famine at a higher rate and and right. all, of, all of these sorts of things so in those agreements is built in this um, idea that the more developed countries actually subsidize the less developed countries to be able to leapfrog technologies and um, actually have developmental work to um, improve the quality of life in those places with funding from the more developed countries. Whether it's enough, sufficient, managed properly are all questions that you know need to be asked. But I think that's the idea anyway of how this would be approached, that you would be able to get more sustainable sources of energy, whether it's like hydro, wind, solar, um, and think about how transport systems are set up, whether um, more regenerative agricultural techniques could be put in place so that they're not depleting their soil, like taking the knowledge that we have and applying it well to these developing countries so that they can benefit from it, um, even though they've been so damaged by the economic systems that you know the more developed countries have taken advantage of and they and they've really exploited some of these countries along the way too and the people there yeah still do. absolutely still yeah do. we still yeah. do i know so let's let me pivot now to kind of um this hasn't been a clear separation to date but now as we kind of bring together the the, the you know we've talked about your background and your sort of the reason side of the equation and we've talked about your faith mm -hmm. side which, by the way, um, you, you kind of have a, a, a built-in expert on theology with your husband, who's a, a deacon. I wish I had that. But, yeah, uh, yeah. My husband is a, a theology teacher in a Catholic school here in Louisville, and he's an ordained deacon. So we have like wow. the faith and science thing going on in our own household. And this summer, the, the we're offering a professional development workshop for teachers on faith and science, and it's the two of us together that are offering this. So this will be the Great. first time that we're doing it. So hopefully, it will go well, and we'll do it more regularly. It's for it's not just for teachers; it's also for catechists. So um, trying to help, I don't know, fill in some gaps or misunderstandings about the faith and science, even for people that are within 
our our church. Is that going to be recorded? No, it's like an all day workshop. Um, okay. So, uh, but um, there may be some things that we develop over over time that'll get uh, recorded. We're talking about taking the the lecture that I did at the Gold Mass and. Um, recording it at some point so that, uh, like doing it again, <laughs> recording it, right. so that it can be used in different ways. Yeah. yeah, that was a great, I really enjoyed listening to that. That was a, that was a really great uh, way, one, of getting to know you, but two, your background and your, and your thinking. You know, the one thing we talked about, you know, offline, but also you mentioned it earlier was, you know, you're thinking around gender, sexuality, how, you know, the that really is a, becoming a strong intersection faith and reason and you're right it's it's a struggle uh in our culture and i think you know there's not a lot of strong understanding um by most people um it's not a a binary choice between men and women um that you know there are uh complexities to it um and church teaching though is pretty clear um for most things what is it about this area that's giving you kind of pause or some thoughts about you know the intersection of faith and sure. science sure i mean the way i can start by the, like the way i think about faith and science is that they are two ways of knowing about the world that um you know we we can uh, approach truth through faith and approach truth through science and they should be compatible and so when there are topics like this that where we're seeing some incompatibilities or tensions showing up, then something's out of whack, um, and we need to we need to investigate that. Um, and so, what I see with this particular topic is that we're learning a lot more from a scientific perspective about gender identity um, and sexuality and the human body and um, our body chemistry and our genetics and all kinds of things um, that is still developing. And when scientific information is still um, evolving and we're still learning more, um, I think it's important to keep an open mind about that um, and about what that means for our faith and our understanding of like the, the human condition. Um, and so that's where I, I just sort of want to recognize that there is this like tension and incompatibility right now with some of the things that we're learning um, through science and what the church says about this, that um, I think it's it's a good idea to kind of open this up and take a, some close looks at this and to talk about it um, and not say that this is a settled issue. Because when we're still learning more in science, then we could also learn more about um, our own understanding of our, our human um, condition and how it relates to our faith and our our relationship to God who, you know, created us in his image. Like, what does that really mean? Um, and how do we learn from science to understand more about that? Yeah, I've, when I've attempted to talk to people kind of on both sides um, within the church, it, it tends to be an issue that is, is I don't want to say shut down, but um, there's a little too much dogmatism because I agree with you. Um, it's something we have to uh, explore and understand, understand how it um, fits into our our uh, theology and how it fits into our uh, understanding of our of our of creation. And you know, I have friends who are gay who have been 
they tell me they have been gay since they were born. There was no, there was no change. There was nothing that happened. They they were just gay, and he's and and some of them are actually barely. The one's Catholic, I think one's Jewish, very devout. But how how does that fit into, uh, it's like more of a rhetorical question, but I've always, one of the things I've struggled with 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 Catholicism is how do do these these obvious outcomes of creation fit into our theology and our our, um, body of knowledge? Because it's, it's, I, I don't think I can say, well, I know I can't say that, well, you're gay, therefore you're going to hell. Now I know a lot of people who would say that, yeah, and I think they're sadly mistaken. But I, I still struggle to see how it fits in. Yeah, I think when we have questions like this, where there are p- points of conflict or tension, however you want to say it, I think these should be invitations to yeah. explore, and and that we shouldn't just say, well, it's we've always said it's this way, and so this is how we think about it. I think. When science reveals new information about our world or a new way of understanding our world, you know, whether it be about gender or sexuality or something else, um, I think it's it's an invitation to broaden our perspective and to take a, a new look at things. And I don't right. think it should be a threatening experience. I think it should be an invitation. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. I, I it almost feels like they they view people I've talked with on. The Catholic side, who have been very, I'll say, dogmatic about it, you know, are very forthright. It's almost like a threat. It's sort of like, well, we can't talk about. That. I mean, I think it's like, a human instinct that if you ha- if you've thought about the world a certain way for a long time, and you've kind of right. think of something as like a settled issue, and it's a really sticky issue, and you're just like, okay, I think I figured it out. I think it's this way. I'm just going to run with that. And then something comes in from left field and kind of upends your idea of how things work, it can feel threatening because your sense of how the world worked is now really different or threatened. And and so, I mean, I understand that instinct of like why someone might have feel threatened by it, but I, I think it's important to try to stay open to dialogue um, at the very least. Uh, and, you know, as a scientist, as scientists, um, I think we may be more open to, to talking about this because we're taking in data. We're taking in information, sure, drawing conclusions right. from it. Like there's a certain way of thinking when you're a scientist that you, you sometimes learn something new and, and you can revise your hypotheses or whatever it is. And that's a very clinical way of talking about something as complex as like social issues. But, but fundamentally, that's kind of how I see it, um, that when we learn new things about the world, we need to kind of examine our assumptions and um, review them and make sure that we're internally consistent, you know, and that we're not in right. conflict. Because I, uh, one thing that I do think is true is that faith and science are compatible. Like that's sort of my starting point. And right. that if there are co- points of conflict, we need to look at that. Right. I mean, whatever the findings of natural sciences are, right, they're not going to contradict uh, Catholic faith since ultimately the truth is one. Right? Mm-hmm. You know, and I, so that's why I don't worry about exploring or at least listening to or reading about exploration sort of gender and sexuality piece because um, I'm not worried about it suddenly resulting in the, the, the 
cancellation of the sacrament of marriage, for example. It's like, yeah. I, I don't think that's what this is about. What I worry but about I, is hurting people that are right. identify as different genders and different sexualities. I, I worry about them um, being hurt by people in the church that are saying things that um, are not of God. Right, right. right. Um, and that's that's what really concerns me um, and why I think that there needs to be a lot of dialogue around this issue. Yeah, I agree. I, um, I, I agree. I think people want to, I think they're afraid to talk about it. I think they, um, but, but then again, you know, where is the Catholic scientist in these areas to step up and try to drive the conversation? Yeah. I haven't. The person that I, I can point to that has the most to, to say about this that I would, would always direct people to is Father Jim Martin. Um, right. Yeah. Right. Who has written extensively about these issues. And so that's a really good starting point for anyone who wants to kind of learn about how to engage in dialogue around this and learn more about how the church reconciles these things. Um, so. Yeah. I, I've, I have read him. I've, um, it's difficult to, um, uh, accept some of the things he says, but, you know, in a spirit of love, you know, you, you, you never want to come away with a, a negative feeling or a negative perspective on the person versus the idea. Um, and yeah, I've, I've struggled with some of the things he's written about, but it's just my trying to understand, you know, a really complex and difficult topic. I, I think people dismiss him quickly. Um, and, but I would say fine, but are you saying maybe there's no discussion about this area? I mean, just, and I'd love, I'd love that there to be discussion. Mm-hmm, um, right. And it just we seems need the dialogue and not yeah. to feel threatened and to to take in perspectives that might be different than your own and have these kinds of conversations. Like that, it doesn't. You don't make progress unless you have hard hard conversations sometimes and think about things that are a little different than your own. Right. 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 Yeah, we covered a lot about. And we brought bring together faith and reason. We also kind of talked a lot about evolution in the podcast. The one thing I'd, I'd, I'd like to come back to is um, the difference between evolution and evolutionism. So we've talked about evolution, but St. Pope John Paul II defined evolutionism as, you know, it's a philosophy which inspires uh, that regardless of the spirit, either as emerging from the forces of living matter, a simple epiphenomenon of that matter, in other words, a derivative of it, um, they're incompatible with the truth about man. And I think in like a, a number of things, you know, there's a theory, a science theory that is clearly true, at least in an approximate way or a very uh, strong approximation like evolution or general relativity, but then a a philosophy is derived from them, which is in contradiction, in this case, evolutionism. And I've read, I don't know if you've read some of the work out there, uh, Pope Benedict XVI had written, or Emeritus Pope Benedict XVI, I'd hate to get my titles <laughs> incorrect here. <laughs> you know, he had two books I really liked. One was in, uh, in the beginning, A Catholic Understanding of the Story of Creation and the Fall, and then another book, which I really like, called Creation and Evolution, in which he had some of his students come together and talk about this topic. Because I think that the danger with evolution um, as a very strong theory is it gets turned into a 
philosophy, and this is where most scientists uh, start to go astray. I think this has shown up a lot in the with the new evangelists and uh, atheists around. <clears throat> excuse me, around this, mm-hmm. who view who view things as well, they have to emerge from matter, right? right. So the soul must re, you know must emerge from matter, and I I so. I don't know if you have any thoughts about this. Yeah, sure. I mean, even more broadly than evolutionism, there's like scientism, right? The idea that right. um, everything can be explained only through natural f- phenomena, that there's like no possibility of the divine. Um, so it's it's like this um, materialism uh, where right. you know, everything is of the world. And that, of course, is not the Catholic perspective on it. Um, it is something that you, you would see more in, in atheist circles um, as like the the notion that there is no openness to something supernatural. Um, right. And so it is it is like a, more of a philosophical idea that um, science is the only way of knowing anything about the world and not um, leaving any space for theology or um, a philosophy of um, understanding that part of our reality. Um, So it is a very different way of looking at the world. Um, And there are a lot of scientists that that kind of adhere to that way of thinking, but that's not what a Catholic scientist would do. At least hope not. Well, yeah, that's not, if, if you are a, a Catholic scientist, uh, I would think that there would be this recognition that there are different ways of approaching truth. That's the, the kind right, of idea. Right. Yeah. yeah, that's why I, I try to use the word reason and not science, because it's, it's not just science, mm-hmm. it's, right. it's philosophy, Lost. art, architecture, all these different things mm-hmm. yeah, different that we systems. have to use. That we right. use to to understand our world, right? And and I you know, experienced scientism in my academic career, and it became a, a a a mindset of well, yeah, sure, this is you know, this is how it works, right? Uh, science answers any questions, and you know, all these other things aren't as powerful as science. And I think that that mindset is still prevalent today. Um, but it's not just so much that that science can answer is the people practicing science are can can consider themselves above criticism or questioning um you know you kind of saw that in the during covid um people asking good questions rational questions were were um had to endure some level of scrutiny that was you know they a level of scrutiny that others didn't have to experience simply because of who they were or what positions they had. And so for me, it's, it's, there's a couple of things at work here. One is just the, the scientism mindset. Um, there's also the, the mindset that, that uh, some people are more equal than others, that they are above reproach, that they are above criticism. And uh, that needs to be, uh, respected and, 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 you know, you, you, you cannot, you cannot think of, of questioning scientism as a, a fruitful and in their ethics and ethical, uh, process. Um, and I, I just find those two things, well, it's two things about my, our profession of science that has been very, uh, disconcerting, you know, for me. 
Now, as you kind of come to the end here, I know we always give the person I interview a, a um, chance to talk about any topic they'd like. If, if you would ask me this question, if you were the host, I would talk about the New York Yankees, but you know, that's just me. But you had done a podcast uh, from the Earth and Spirit Center on science, faith, and deep time. I know that was something you're passionate about, but there's, is there any topic like that or any other topic you'd like to cover before we wrap? Sure. I mean, I think that that topic from my um, experience on the Earth and Spirit Center podcast is, is one that I reflect on a lot um, because of just the kind of scientist that I am. As a paleontologist, I have a different perspective on the Earth than even other scientists might because of the, the way I think about our planet as being so old. You know, it's hard, even even when you are a geologist or a paleontologist, to really conceptualize what a million years is or a billion years is because we don't think on those kind of timescales. You just think about how long it's been since Christ walked the earth. 2,000 years seems like a really long time ago. I mean, there was different yeah. languages spoke in, in just a, a couple thousand years. And we're talking about times that go back millions of years ago. I mean, it's it's boggles the mind. And so, you know, when I think about humanity's place on our planet and the larger scheme of things, and even going back to the origin of the universe, like beyond even the origin of our planet, of just what that means, like the cosmology of all of that is just awe-inspiring and just fascinating and motivating to to study and try to understand, uh, but also really humbling. And especially when it comes to things like uh, our understanding of humans' effect on the planet, that um, in just a short time, like let's say the last 10,000 years when humans started to s settle down and have permanent um, like agricultural settlements and so forth, what we've done to transform landscapes, soil, um, our atmosphere, our oceans. And then within the last 150 years or 200 years or so of the Industrial Revolution, what that has done, that we've un unearthed um, millions of years of the remains of organisms and then burned them and put them in the atmosphere. I mean, it's just incredible how quickly humanity has taken what was inside of this ancient earth and harnessed it for our own use to our own demise. <laughs> and, you know, that kind of perspective is, I think, um, one that takes time to kind of understand and develop and wallow in. <laughs> and, um, but it also, I think, speaks to why it is a moral imp imperative to try to course correct because we clearly have done something wrong um, right. in my view like we've taken this beautiful planet that has had these incredible processes unfolding all this time and then without understanding it at at, at least initially without understanding it we have damaged it um, beyond repair at, um, at least on t human time scales, and now we have to try to figure out how to reverse what we can, so that humans can continue to to live and thrive here. And it's we've have our work cut out for us, and it, it, you know it's um, keeps me up at night sometimes. Uh, but 
all I can really do is try to educate people um, in different ways on how to think about this problem, how to act about this problem, how to advocate about this problem and live an ethical and moral life to try to do God's will. Right. Um, so right. that that's kind of where I am on this. It's a, a problem that um, is so large, but it's helpful to have that global deep time perspective on it because it clearly shows us where humanity fits into it and, and where we are wrong and what we need to do. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I worry about a, a kind of a death spiral, right? That, that, uh, I don't know if those are your words or mine um, from your podcast, but basically, you know, we're we're always dependent on the earth, but it feels like we're we become more and more dependent on the earth in terms of trying to implement new technologies or new approaches to solving problems, and it, it just feels like the more we need the earth, the more we harm it, the more we harm ourselves, and I I I, I kind of worry about what we would typically call and trading a, a death spiral here. So. Yeah. I don't know. I, I think, um, the, again, the deep time perspective is helpful here too because yeah. we are not at like the omega point right now. <laughs> we are not yeah. at the end of um, all of this. You know, it's going to play out for many generations to come. It may be really ugly um, at, you know, in the future. There may be some very ugly times. Um, it's kind of yeah. ugly now, <laughs> right? Um, but, you know, we have to work towards getting out of a death spiral. Like we have to work towards what yeah. sustainability looks like. And sustainability looks like taking care of ourselves and the planet and our ability to thrive on this planet. And there are lots of ways to approach that. And we have lots of ideas about how it can be done, but it's not something yeah. that you can do in a generation. It's going to be um, a very long time over millennia of getting to that's how i see it anyway like it, yeah, i think it's yeah. hard for us to see outside of our own like you know 80 90 years on this planet that our lives are here or maybe if right. we think about our children or grandchildren like beyond that it's hard to envision what that looks like but we're part of a much longer arc <laughs> and um you know i think it's important to recognize that that we're part of a, a bigger creation that doesn't just begin and end with one human being's life, you know? Like it might be what we experience here on this planet, but it is a, a part of a bigger um creation. Yeah, right. right. Well the one the the one saving grace in my mind is, you know, human beings are, if anything, we're adaptable, right? We can adapt to problems and issues and potentially that adaptation that we start um, or start to uh, think about may may move us in a better direction. I I'm, I I don't I don't worry so much about some of the more dire prognostications about the twenty twenty feet of water in New York City and you know with glaciers and things. I think we're we are sufficiently adaptable, but it's the more long term, to your point, impacts that you know are we simply adding to our problem or is our adaptations um, stopping the problem or at least slowing down the issues and problems? And I don't, I don't have a good answer, but yeah. I'd like to think our ability to adapt is, is, is a good thing and not a bad thing. 
I worry. I don't, I also don't really worry that much about New York city, like, um, or like these places that are on the coast, like for, for different reasons. Like one is that, you know, we're going to engineer certain things. We're going to have managed retreat moving back from the coast. There will be ways that people handle that and they'll in some ways be kind of forced to do it. Um, what I worry more about is agriculture and feeding people and right. taking care of their like immediate needs because we are going to see problems with that um, this year because of what's happening in Ukraine and Russia, but also in, in years to come. I mean, we've seen it before. It's This is not a new thing. It's been throughout antiquity, right? But, um, you know, there's we're getting close to 8 billion people on the planet. And um, that's going to rise for a little while longer. And we're going to need to continue to feed people on this planet with a changing climate. And that, I think, is the more important challenge that we're going to need to work with. And that it involves the fossil fuel industry. It involves our understanding of climate and our resources and water rights and lots of different things. And um, so I, that's what I think um, is a, a bigger concern to me than like if we're going to be able to engineer pumps and flood walls to protect vacation homes around Ocean City, Maryland. You know what I mean? Like that I, I just see as not um, yeah. a good use of financial resources um, there would probably be lots of money poured into that kind of stuff, but I think that it's much more important um, from an ethical standpoint and a spiritual standpoint to be caring for each other and our common home <laughs> and everything right. that goes with it. And that's where the core of Laudato Si is. It's like, yeah. how do we approach this huge problem in a way that cares for our common man and our humanity and our world because we are so dependent on it. Um, so that that's what I, I think is the, the core of our, our path forward. Yeah. Well, listen, thank you so much. It's been great to uh, speak with you. Very enlightening. I, I learned a lot. Thanks. Is, yeah. you, know, you know, I'm hoping others who listen to podcasts come away with some positive things and, and, I do appreciate the time. Appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much.